coming up next on RCR. It's the dialogue with Dewey DeBoer from politics. So we sort of uh, have a, a crossroads, as it were, here in New Zealand. To power. You know, when, when good men stand up, the spines of others are stiffened. And culture. Through times like this, you know, through adversity, you can see who you can trust, who, who you can rely on. You see who's standing with you. And all of these things are very, very valuable. Tune in on Fridays right here on RCR. Reality Check Radio. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way. Because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together. And so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions but you know as I've said before there is no such thing as a wrong opinion opinions are like noses everybody's got one the exchange of views fair debate no cancelling no interrupting no aggressive responses we want to hear what people have to say whatever side you're on and the listener the consumer with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. It is the end of summer by the reckoning of the weatherman and the first day of autumn. Welcome to the show. I am Diwa DeBoer, and you are listening to The Dialogue on RCR. I tend to favour the autumnal equinox on the 20th of March as the start of autumn, but since that runs into Easter week, we will have a little celebration of autumn on this show when the meteorologists say the new season starts. One of the bits of feedback I had from Lindsay Perigo was that he wanted the show renewed for all four seasons in response to my playing Antonio Vivaldi's summer violin concerto on my first show. So we will have Vivaldi's Autumn at the end of this show. In the program today, we have Isaac Young, an independent author who is writing a number of science fiction and fantasy books. He'll be joining us to talk about his projects, his inspirations, what he is doing to create positive and good culture, and the uncertain future of AI as a useful artistic tool and also the degeneracy that we see from the culture coming out of Hollywood. In perhaps the most controversial interview we've done to date, Joe Trinder, a Maori rights activist, comes on the show to argue his case for co-governance and decolonization as a way to address the grievances of the past. Our final guest today will be 18-year-old Marcus, who will join us to talk about his part in founding the Zealandia Heritage Foundation to preserve New Zealand's culture by digging through old archives and sharing the history that isn't being taught at school. As usual, we'll have plenty of classical music, poetry, and history. My wife Amy will once again join us at the end to read out all of your thoughts and questions from last week, so please keep sending those in throughout the morning and early afternoon. 
I'll also respond to some of the attacks that far-left activist organizations and the left-wing legacy media launched against RCR after last week's immensely well-received show. But first, we must mourn the death of NewsHub, the media agency that was announced to be shuttered. Warner Brothers, who owns NewsHub, announced on Wednesday that NewsHub will close its doors in June and all its staff will be made redundant. NewsHub was truly one of the worst offenders when it came to left-wing bias in New Zealand's media landscape, so I, for one, will not miss them. But we can have a little radio funeral of sorts for them with a little bit of poetry set to music. So we will have a short piece by Vaughan Williams, Come Away Death, which puts to song a poem by the great William Shakespeare. Vaughan Williams was the teacher and mentor of the famous New Zealand composer Douglas Lilburn, who is most known for his trio of musical works on New Zealand identity. So this piece by Vaughan Williams, Come Away Death, and in sad cypress, let me be laid. After last week's show, Stuff ran a hit piece on RCR titled The Fringe Radio Station That Chats With Ministers and Conspiracy Theorists Alike. I guess they had wanted to run that for a long time with far-left activists calling for MPs to boycott our station and hoping that the left-wing legacy media would apply pressure for them. Let's listen to what the Prime Minister, Christopher Luxon, was asked in a post-Cabinet press conference on Monday and his excellent response. So do you think that is a concern, that uh, ministers could be being drawn into quite extreme content on that station? Well, again, uh, you know, that's up for um, individual ministers to work out. We want to make ourselves available to as many media outlets as we possibly can. Plurality of media voices in New Zealand is very, very important. Um, we do not want to see a group think emerge. It's actually very important that that happens. So, um, you know, ministers will make that call as to uh, who they go on so they can get their messages out and about to all New Zealanders. It's important. The lobby group behind this line of questioning calls themselves FACT, Fight Against Conspiracy Theories. But like most communist agitation groups, the name is the opposite of what they really do, spread lies. They were upset by the interview we did with Austrian Martin Sellner last week, who, as you heard from his own mouth, is a big proponent of nonviolence and peaceful activism to change political policy. They've long tried to blame him for the Christchurch terror attack, as a large donation had been made to Martin the year prior. But we know, in fact, that the terrorist completely rejected Martin's peaceful politics and chose instead a path of violence and terror in the year that followed. Indeed, they could offer no complaint about anything that Martin said in the interview, other than his support for a burqa ban, which is the actual law in many European countries, and his support for remigration, which would support positive incentives for illegal immigrants and other migrants to return to their home countries. And again, policies for this are being trialed by some European governments. In response to these underhanded tactics by the legacy media, some other MPs also responded. David Seymour said, and I quote, I always intend to raise the standard of debate and I'm happy to challenge interviewers. I talk to a wide variety of media outlets, even niche ones like stuff. Having a range of voices in the media can only be a good thing. End quote. He went on to accuse fact of being a left-wing lobby group, which is very much the truth. 
They hoped that this week would result in the cancellation of Reality Check Radio, but instead we are stronger than ever. And one of their own news hub is gone. Now, more than ever, it's important for the legacy media not to silence voices, but rather to continue the dialogue. Thanks for tuning in to the Dialogue with Dewa DeBoer. You can catch the Dialogue replays on our website at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash replays. Welcome back to the Dialogue with Dewa DeBoer on Reality Check Radio. You can text us on 2057 or email your thoughts on the show to inbox at realitycheck.radio. I'm joined this morning by Isaac Young, who is an author based in the United States. He's self-published one science fiction book, The Matryoshka Divide, which you can find on Amazon. He's working on several other books, drafts of which are serialized on his Substack account as he writes them. He's also known for his thought-provoking analysis of art and culture on Twitter, especially critiquing modern writing and why so much of it lacks soul. Welcome to the show, Isaac. Thank you for having me on. So could you tell us a little bit more about your first book, what drove you to actually write a book? I believe you're fairly young, and of all of the careers you could have chosen, why did you choose writing books? I've always wanted to be a writer. I loved reading ever since I was young. I was known as the kid who sat in the corner and read all day back in uh, middle and high school. So writing always seemed just a natural progression of that. I always wanted to be an author. As for my first book, I'm a particular fan of Isaac Asimov's Foundation Trilogy, and I wanted to write a sort of Catholic response to uh, some of the themes in that book. Isaac Asimov is a rationalist atheist, and I wanted to do a Catholic take on his ideas. And you've got several other projects in progress as well. I think Giga Heroes and the Domes of Calrathia. Uh, Could you describe those briefly as well, and perhaps even some motivation behind starting those? So I'll start with Giga Heroes because it's the uh, simpler project to explain. So my, my impetus behind Giga Heroes came from an exhaustion with modern media's obsession with superhero movies. Marvel is still trudging on after 20 years, and it's just getting more and more tired. And... The superhero genre itself has been hollowed out quite a bit by deconstructionist stories. Everyone's doing evil Superman, evil Batman, evil Justice League. And Giga Heroes was meant to be sort of anti-commentary on deconstructionism. I wanted to, I'm I'm coining a phrase, reconstruction. Uh, I wanted to start out with a dystopia with, deeply flawed characters and move them to a better place instead of doing a cynical takedown as so many other uh, stories are doing nowadays. That seems to be a very common trend in all kinds of entertainment and media where you have characters and maybe they try and get people to like the characters and then the characters do all kinds of bad things and they try to destroy those characters. And that seems to be the, the modern trend, unfortunately. Uh, Domes of Calrathia is my second project. It's situated within the dying earth genre, which uses a blend of fantasy and science fiction elements to explore themes of collapse and uh, 
post-apocalyptic conditions. It's it, high fantasy and Lord of the Rings-esque kind of way. It's situated on a far-off land with strange characters and strange races and peoples. It's a lot more speculative than Giga Heroes. And what I wanted to do with that narrative was sort of explore heroism and how it can be found in in a civilization that's long since collapsed. And what uh, is it about science fiction that draws you to it? And, and in some sense, the fantasy elements as well. Why write a story about a world that doesn't exist and instead of writing, say, about real people in the real world? What can we as readers, and in your case as a writer, what is the important thing you're trying to communicate? Well, I think in speculative fiction, while they may be about distant lands and far-off peoples, they still tackle themes and ideas that are still very relevant to our day-to-day lives. And I'm particularly a fan of Tolkien's view of escapism, in which you're basically um, escaping modernity into this wonderful tale, and then you're coming back with something that can enrich your life and help you fight back against all these awful forces that are uh, tearing apart society today. I like that take. I think we get a lot of media that's purely about, or even art that's purely about, say, consumption, just be entertained and there's nothing deeper to it, nothing more meaningful to it. And often as well, this is derided from a from a, a religious perspective to say, oh, well, you're wasting your time with fiction when really you should be focused on the real world. But also we can actually communicate a lot of transcendental ideas, uh, truths that help us in the real world. And that's a really great thing. You also do a lot of critique on modern writing. I saw a recent one that you did on a Hollywood movie called Starship Troopers that was based on on a book written much earlier. Then the book was a serious book, right, about a, a sort of a, a future military culture that was conquering the universe. And the movie that was made was basically a satire, a parody of the original book made by a leftist who thought the story was too right-wing and he was going to make fun of it. And I'll read out a little bit of, of what you wrote here on Twitter. I quote, why the first Starship Troopers movie failed as a parody. Watching the movie, it was clear the director was aiming for a campy, over-the-top depiction of the Terran Federation, perhaps not an outright mockery, but certainly a drastic departure from the serious novel. First, let's tackle a writing pitfall that irks leftists to this day. If you make the characters naturally handsome, fit, and well-groomed, then it becomes increasingly difficult to properly mock them. Beauty is self-evident, and all the characters in Starship Troopers are good-looking. This extends to the overall Terran Federation as well. We see clean, beautiful streets. Life seems good for Rico and his polite high school. This is a far cry from the crime-ridden and drug-addicted cities we know today, where are the homeless encampments, the ghettos, and so on. And later on, you write, all right, what about a critique of comparison? Perhaps the enemies of the Terran Federation have a better system. Oh, wait, no, they're bugs. I've seen people genuinely argue that the bugs are supposed to be sympathetic, but they're still bugs. This is not a face I can relate to, sympathize for, or even have a dialogue with. The screams at me to kill it with fire. Even if I didn't want to kill this thing, I would want to be in orbit far away from this creature. 
That's horrific, and only a contrarian can argue against that. And end quote there. The that last bit especially went very viral on Twitter. I think millions, millions, and millions of impressions, thousands of angry tweets. So, what was the reaction from people who disagreed with you? Well, the funniest reaction was all the people who came in and openly sided with the bugs. <laughs> that was the part I was not expecting. Like, I, I got thousands of quote tweets saying, oh yeah, we're going to have a beer with the bugs. We're going to join up with the bugs. The bugs seem nice. Even though in the movie, the bugs tear into a man's skull and eat his brains out. Yeah, so what? it's, it's strange, I guess, especially in contemporary politics as well. The bugs are controversial. You've got the, the evil Klaus Schwab, World Economic Forum, people who want to make people eat bugs and there's, there's very much, a, very much a strange left-wing support for bugs, that bugs are good for us and we're going to have a symbiotic relationship with the bugs. Is, is that a new thing? Or I mean, I don't, did the creators, do you think the, the director genuinely thought people would sympathize with the bugs or in, in his movie? Like, it seems very strange. The best take I heard about the director's intentions with the bugs was there supposed to be a metaphor for dehumanization? The problem is the director went so far in that metaphor that the bugs are completely unsympathetic whatsoever. And just a regular person watching this would just come away with, oh, hey, the bugs are bad, kill all the bugs. And the, the metaphor is, in my mind, part of why Starship Troopers fails as a parody is that you look at the movie, you know it's supposed to be a satire. But everything is played so unironically that you can't help but support the Terran Federation mm-hmm. and, the, and the troopers. And the original book, then, I haven't read any of it, so I'm not sure the context. But I know that you have because you said you had read the book. So is the author of the original uh, of the book, he, he himself is making a very serious point about this military-driven society that he thinks will work? I don't know if he specifically thinks it'll work because I've heard takes that Heinlein was just exploring various political philosophies and in flushing them in his novels. I've read part of Stranger in a Strange Land, which espouses, at least in my mind, a very different philosophy than what Starship Troopers did. I don't know the specifics of Heinlein's personal beliefs, but I, I do know from what I've read of Starship Troopers, the novel... It's all played very seriously. It's, it's not a satire in the slightest. This is a commentary on political discourse, well, political military discourse, uh, with some economic theory thrown in as well. Yeah, so, and, and this is going back to, I guess, why people write science fiction, is that you have an, an author who's trying to explore political ideas, ideas about the military, ideas about economics, and he's weaving them into a story, creating a hypothetical society where all of these things, you know, these ideas are basically only only the those who have served in the military can be citizens and, and vote, and uh, democracy is, is only determined by those who have actually put their lives on the line for the system itself. And without having to actually create the society, he can write a book about it and basically say, hey, this could be something interesting that people could glean something from. And it seems that he did such a good job that even the people who tried to mock it ended up just creating something that people say, oh, wow, this is so cool. It looks, it looks really nice. I enjoy it. Even if the supposed subtext that Hollywood was trying to put into it was to make people think it should have been bad. 
Yeah, I, I definitely think the director of Starship Troopers, I cannot pronounce his name for the life of me, Avir Hoven. I, but, um, I don't know. I, I don't know. It's fine. I think, I think he just, he made a very clunky satire that you need, you sort of need to have that meta commentary uh, narrative put over the movie in order to really get its message on a visceral level. Uh, Does this work play a little bit into modern conceptions on the internet where the this phrase the left can't meme comes up because <laughs> when you know a meme needs to be something that's really snappy, somebody looks at it and gets what the message is that's being conveyed. And you often look at these memes that some of these uh, socialists construct and it's just like paragraphs of text that you have to read and none of it draws you in in any way at all. Yeah, that's... Uh... The reason behind that is that their worldview is so artificial and constructed that they need to bombard you with these essays in order to get their point across because it's just so divorced from reality. They didn't. Need, they need to be making arguments on arguments to get to their conclusions. Whereas someone on the right can look at some phenomena, make a short sentence observation, and move on. We referred a little bit to the sort of the corruption of entertainment and art in, in Hollywood. Is this something that you've seen as being a long-term strategy, deliberate corruption? And is there any way that people fight back against it? Because I've noticed an increasing number of complaints. Now, I've checked out a long time ago, but I see an increasing number of complaints of people who see all of this art that's being produced, all of the entertainment that they're being bombarded with is increasingly degenerate and corrupting, no good morals in it whatsoever. And if you look back further, if you look back in, over the last hundred years, it really has been, the seeds of it have been there since the beginning and just getting worse and worse and worse. Yeah, I'd say wokeness is not a new phenomenon. It was right there from the beginning, but back in the early days, at least, I mean, even if we turn back the clock to something like the 1980s and 90s, but what this was back then was the ideas of classical liberalism, when people still believed in those ideals. Like if you look yeah. at something like Star Trek, for example, you have all the egalitarian, rationalist worldview that's very organic. It's in dialogue. It's making self-critiques of itself, and it comes off as, I wouldn't say deep, but I would say something that you could believe in. And unfortunately, as those ideals became transparently fake, what we got instead now is wokeness, where they just sort of treat you with a narcissistic smugness, because that's all they got. They can't engage in any dialogue, because you could point out all the flaws in their reasoning and arguments, how their ideals are not manifesting in any way across reality. And they literally have to shut down all conversation in order to keep their uh, pretension by legitimacy. Mm -hmm. A critique that I had heard of Star Trek is that basically the universe in which the characters live cannot actually produce the characters who are portrayed. The outstanding moral nature, the hard work they put in, in in a universe where effectively it's post-scarcity, where people don't have to work, where people don't have to believe in religion, there's absolutely no reason why anyone would ever want to serve in a federation, sort of voluntarily work really hard, be part of a hierarchy and be part of a disciplined unit of people exploring the galaxy. 
when you don't actually need to do anything or believe in anything because the universe doesn't require you to do that. Yeah, I, Picard is an aristocrat in an egalitarian society. And it just doesn't make any sense. Right. So the aristocrat can only be produced from society that came before it. And, but, but yeah, and it becomes a bit of an oxymoron. We sort of see that actually today where we do still have these leftover aristocracies in some places in, in the Western world. Not, not in America where you live, but say the United Kingdom is a good example where they have the House of Lords and they have these aristocrats and these monarchs. But increasingly the world today is not capable of producing people like that. And so you see very rapidly the decay. You see the people themselves asking, why do we have these aristocrats? You know, What are they for? They're just a, a relic of the past because society can no longer produce them. In all societies, you need great and capable men to lead them. And when you don't have that, you have a society that's essentially crumbling because people can no longer maintain the systems needed to keep society functioning. What do you see as the place and future of art and entertainment on the right? How do you challenge this system, this corrupt, degenerate system that's producing all the art and entertainment? And how do you come up with something better. We, so we can look back at the past and say, oh, there used to be great art made, there used to be you know, great writings, wholesome entertainment that people could actually enjoy and that families could take inspiration from. If all that's gone, how do you build it back up from scratch? I, it, it's sort of the question everyone's trying to answer is how do we go about creating parallel institutions? And there's a lot of great people working on this problem right now on Twitter and other places. But the short answer and the difficult answer is you're just going to have to create your own entertainment. Uh, you have to be creating, you have to be writing your own books. You have to be filming your own movies, even though that's especially difficult. You have to be painting your own art. And you have to, the, the key thing that we're trying to build right now is uh, social groups where, you know, you have an indie author who's written a book. Now he needs people to read it. And that's the critical step that we're still trying to figure out is trying to spread these new indie creations to an audience to support them. Mm -hmm. And you're actually a good example of this because I was following a different commentator on uh, YouTube and Twitter and so on, Dave Green, known as a distributist. Hopefully at some stage I'll interview him as well. But he talks about politics, commentary, current events. And I saw him retweet one of your works. In fact, your, your, your book that you had published, The Matroska Divide. And I thought, oh, this looks interesting. If someone is recommending this book, I don't know who this guy is. Don't know Isaac Young, never heard of that name. But I'm going to go and click on it and I'm going to read the book because someone else has recommended it. And uh, I bought the book and I read through it and I was very impressed. I, I was like, wow, someone who's young, first time writing a book, doesn't have any professional help, basically. And the book is really coherent and I really enjoyed the characters, really enjoyed the story. The worlds were expansive. You know, you've, you've, you have these characters who have real, were really driven by something they want to achieve and they're trapped in this system that they want to try and escape out of. And the system's rigged against them and it's, it's, it's just wonderful to see them struggle against it and some of them overcome it in some ways and others find different meaning in their lives. You just beautiful science fiction story that we need more of. And like you say, the hard part is discovering them. How do we share them around? So being able to do an interview like this on reality check radio and introduce, you know, possibly 
And I'm sure that we have listeners here who are interested in science fiction. They might go and check out your book. And so hopefully we can sort of spread the work that good independent authors like yourself are doing. Thank you. You mentioned a little bit about things that are difficult to do in terms of creating entertain, you know, creating forms of art or entertainment, especially more complicated things like whether it's film or even drawing you. And obviously we have artificial intelligence tools now, AI. So do you see this as, as helpful or harmful in the long run for the right wing? So I know that there are several people, especially Andrew Torba from Gab, who is basically touting his AI tools as you know, something that's going to transform the way that uh, right-wingers can create their own content. They don't need these big systems. They don't need big funds. They can use AI tools and create their own forms of entertainment, whatever they want. I think this, the jury is still out on how AI is going to uh, change the landscape for good or for ill. I'm going to withhold my opinion on whether or not it's a long-term good thing or bad thing because I just I don't know how far the technologies can pro- progress. I've heard things saying that we've already sort of reached the limit of what AI can do. I don't know if that's true or not. But if, if it stays as it is, uh, I see it as being just a supplementary thing that, for example, I use a lot of AI art to supplement my writing. With each chapter on Giga Heroes or the Domes of Calrathia, I generate an AI piece just to help with the reader's imagination for advertising to give something a little bit more concrete for people to visualize for the book. Yeah, I I don't know what the future is going to hold for AIR. And obviously that is something that's already very useful to you because getting someone to draw something for every chapter that you write, that could be insanely expensive. That's cost prohibitive for you. But if you can generate it, then it really helps. And there's, there are plenty of useful AI tools. Like in my own work, I use AI quite a bit, but it's not for anything related to trying to create unique things, right? It's, it's largely using the algorithms to rearrange information that's already out there. Have you got any further comments on the latest AI products? So Google released Gemini last week and it was universally derided, mocked because the whole thing was deliberately designed I was just about to use the term broken, but it's not It's not broken. It's, it's deliberately designed. Everything it does is completely functional to be effectively anti-white and to inject diversity into everything. It would create images of, uh, you know, you said you'd ask for historical images of English kings and it would just give you pictures of, you know, anything but a white man who was an actual king of England. And, and it's text generation does something similar. Do you see that these basically these products will continue to get worse in terms of how they are controlled and and an attempt to restrict people from using them in a good way yeah i was uh, i was skirting around that discourse for a while on twitter i didn't comment on it but i definitely saw a lot of people who were rightfully mocking it it's this tension that tech companies are continually lobotomizing their own ai products and this, this is partly why I say I don't know what the future of AI holds, because if they continue lobotomizing their products, then AI is not going to be a, a, a very useful tool to anyone. Regarding Gemini, I think it's what happened with that AI platform was the mask came off at Google to show all their woke biases for what they are in a very a embarrassing way for the company. 
I think that's why it was uh, particularly talked about because it, we can beat around the bush about what diversity means all day. But what, what it really comes down to is anti-whiteness and white hatred. And it, it's so obvious with Gemini that that's exactly what they're doing. And the subjectivism that they've injected into it as well is remarkable. It won't even, say, condemn Adolf Hitler over anyone else. If you try and compare yourself or any other figure and say, hey, which one is worse? It won't. It doesn't even want to do that. It's reached a. a it's it's been deliberately designed with that level of moral relativism that it's not willing to say whether one thing is better than another, and that's that seems to be a very destructive part of the the woke or the diversity agenda is a, a complete stripping away of morality, other than trying to create subjective comparisons of who may be better or worse than anyone else, and the whole thing boggles my mind. Well, the woke do actually have a moral structure. It's anything that's against them is immoral. That's the uh, that's it's it's all into power, really. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a collection of the margins of the fringes, and if you're part of the margin or the fringes, then then you're good. And if you're not if you're not marginal, you're not fringe, then you're bad. And and that obviously creates uh, just the the most bizarre results you could possibly think of when all of these because if you're talking to somebody in real life, you wouldn't realize just how bad this is because they might fake it. They might resort to just talking normally. But as soon as you program this into an artificial intelligence, as soon as you program this into a a pattern recognition machine, it becomes incredibly obvious as to how their belief system is really structured. And then you think about the fact that Google is injecting this into everything. So if you're trying to do Google search, you're trying to, you know, use the YouTube algorithm, you're trying to find content, that's what it's injecting into the results that you're getting. And you can tell, obviously, it's going to be suppressing anything that would be useful and good. And this will be incredibly difficult for indie authors like yourself, people who are trying to create content that's based in reality, content that's based in morality and and Christianity. It's a very active suppression that's going on. And the deck here is basically stacked against you. Yeah, it's it's sort of where the underdogs Thankfully, there's been uh, ever since Elon Musk bought Twitter, there's been a um, there's been a little bit more freedom in what he can say and do than previously. Were you active much on social media before Elon Musk bought Twitter? Like, how would you describe your experience in living in the digital wasteland? You know, before and after the the, the great liberation that Elon Musk brought to Twitter. I actually I arrived right before Elon Musk bought Twitter. I joined the platform, I think in 2022, maybe. Actually, let me, let me check. Yeah, I joined January 2022. So I didn't actually see Twitter as it was during the worst years. And I wasn't big enough to catch the uh, attention of any of their bots or, uh, well, mm-hmm. I wasn't big enough to warrant sniping. But I, I do hear, I did hear horror stories about comments being deleted about accounts being shut down maliciously so uh, judging from what other people have said uh, it's it's definitely a lot better than it previously once was mm-hmm. and sometimes we, we speak about the social ills of social media how it's bad for our lives but how would you be able to get the word out without social media is your 
your work as an author, finding your audience, getting feedback from people, would any of that be possible without social media or, yeah? It would be possible. It's just, it would be incredibly difficult to do so because a lot of uh, in real life communities have just been dissolved or um, otherwise shut down, especially uh, after the COVID lockdowns. You saw a lot of social bonds just being irreparably destroyed. If I didn't have social media, my next best place to market would be my church community. But again, it's still small and it would just be inordinately difficult to try to get the word out without social media. It's un- unfortunately, it, it, Twitter might be a hellscape, but it's unfortunately a very necessary hellscape until we can create something better. Well, thank you very much for joining me this morning. And to the listeners, please do send us your thoughts on what we've discussed. And have you got any final thoughts yourself before we wrap up? And you can also remind people how they could easily find your work. Yeah, you can find my work on my Substack, Transor Publishing, T-R-A-N-T-O-R. Uh, <laughs> it's a reference to, uh, it's another reference to the Foundation Trilogy. As for final comments, I would say I'm I'm very excited to see what the indie scene is going to produce in the next few years. We've taken a huge steps. I'm a particular fan of Passage Prize. Have you heard of it? I have. In fact, I should have asked you. Maybe now is a good time because the, it's a collection of short stories that they've published recently, right? And you're you're one of those called After the Collapse. Uh, yeah, that's. Um, so there's there's two things. There's Passage Press, which is their publishing house. Yeah, and I was part of the After the War anthology, which was a collection of short stories examining future states of America. If we win, if the woke wins, or just a number of other scenarios. Uh, Passage Prize, it's the last, it's gonna be the last contest. So I recommend submitting now. It's a magazine that's basically a collection of short stories, nonfiction articles, artwork, and it's meant to be a, a sort of showcase for everything that's on the that's being produced in reactionary circles. <laughs> and you use this term reactionary circles, I guess, talking about the indie scene. We're talking very specifically about, I guess, politically aligned with sort of right-wing politics, sometimes referred to as dissident right or neo-reactionary. Have you got a very quick summary for the audience of what that might <laughs> what that might be? I know asking for a quick summary is hard since most videos about neo-reactionary theory are like three hours long. So I'm gonna I'm gonna let you take a stab at it. Well, I mean, the, the difficulty is is that there's no there's no one phrase to describe this weird coalition that we find ourselves in. Reactionary in common parlance just means anyone who is dissatisfied with the woke, and that can take a number of forms. It can be a religious a person, a Catholic, or a neo pagan, or some other. Variants. You can be an atheist and be critiquing the social collapse. It, it literally just means whoever is dissatisfied with the current status quo. Unfortunately, um, that is what it is. Yeah, I'm. That, that's a that's a good enough like one line explanation. I like it. I'll try and get some of the other people from these neo reactionary or dissident right 
circles on in, on the show in the future, and I'll get them to ex- explain the political side <laughs> of things. Um, Everyone's going to give you their own take, but <laughs> yeah, they they will. But it's great to hear from you as someone who's trying to create art, trying to create culture in these political circles. And it's just great because sometimes it is something you hear from left wing people who control basically all of the modern art all of the main institutions, right? You try and go to like museums, you try and go to art galleries, you try and go to these book fairs that have uh, you know, book prizes that that are funded by the government or large institutions, and all of it is left-wing. And I saw art is left-wing. You know, there's no right-wing art. The left-wing it, it has some kind of inherent control over art. And it's clearly not true, obviously, uh, from uh, looking at history. But in the modern world, it's clear they control the commanding heights of the artistic world. Yeah, it's a it's a shame that they do. I do wish there was. I mean, there are there are certain film studios which are, I guess, more right leaning. There's certainly they're they're doing something over at the uh, the Daily Wire with their um, indie movie production. But it's just a shame that there aren't more out there because, especially television and movies, that's sort of the how you connect into cultural discourse for America and the West. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's everywhere in the in the West, for better or for worse. You know, we can say television, movies, TV series, it's all bad. But that is the normal the normal cultural discourse that takes place there, the what people absorb, the the morals, the the themes, the things they talk about, all of it is absorbed through these particular mediums. And uh yeah, we don't really have a way to just like destroy that, but we hopefully have some ability to start creating alternatives. Yeah, definitely. Okay, thank you very much. And just to remind people, Isaac's Substack, uh, you can just go to isaacyoung.substack.com or you can look for his book on Amazon, The Matryoshka Divide. And like I said, he basically publishes everything for free first. You can read early drafts of all of his work. It's a wonderful way to actually get people interested, I think, Isaac, because when I started reading your, your first little chapters, I thought, ah, maybe I'll wait till he's finished the book. And then I got curious and I read a couple of chapters and got hooked, you know, waiting every couple of weeks for you to write the next chapter. So it's a great system. Uh, and hopefully uh, you do still make money out of this at some in some way at the end of the day. Yeah, um, I do have some very generous people who uh, get paid subscriptions. For those people, I offer a monthly exclusive short story, voting privileges, so they get to decide what content gets made first. Giga Heroes seems to be a bit more popular than Domes of Calrathia, so I've been working on Giga Heroes first and then uh, uh, chugging away at Domes in the background. And yeah, they, they are very, very generous. I am humbled by their support. They help me grow the uh, platform and dedicate more time to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you said earlier, the the culture is very much saturated with superhero stories. And so having your your take uh, your little spin on the superheroes and you know, how would they really how would society really react to having these superheroes that could basically just level entire cities and how would that create a dystopian society and then how would people actually break free of this and actually do heroic things i can see why it's very appealing to people all right so that really is it thank you for joining me isaac and to all the listeners we will be right back after this break Would you like to be a part of Reviving Honest Media? At RCR, we're on a mission to do just that. We report on critical, censored stories and hold those in positions of power to account. As Paul Brennan says, 
it's a good mission. Now there's an easy way to support RCR and at the same time receive some amazing benefits. Our Foundation Membership Club is here. As a member, you'll enjoy a host of exclusive benefits, including a daily bite-sized news digest, a backstage pass to RCR, and discounted merchandise. Find out all you need to know about our Foundation membership now at www.realitycheck.radio. I hope you enjoyed Isaac's perspectives on writing fiction in the modern age. Quite enjoy his use of technology like Twitter, Substack, and AI to replace some of the lost opportunities that writers had in the last century of using newspapers and the like to get serialized stories out. One of the things I realized while talking to him is that since I've completely checked out of the modern entertainment sphere, I haven't used any streaming services for the better part of a decade, the popular culture is very much saturated with the things it produces. Even in politics and commentary, so much of the discourse revolves around the garbage stories that Hollywood produces and the memes we create from it. We must break free from this and build our own parallel institutions by supporting our own artists to create counter-cultural stories. In this week's Great Leaders of History segment, we will cover Otto von Bismarck. Otto von Bismarck, often dubbed the Iron Chancellor, was a colossus of 19th century politics, whose strategic and diplomatic prowess engineered the unification of Germany and significantly altered the geopolitical landscape of Europe. He was born into a Prussian aristocratic family in 1815. He embarked on a career in law, quickly grew disillusioned with bureaucracy and shifted toward estate management and then politics. His ascent was marked by a pragmatic approach to governance, a keen understanding of power dynamics and an unshakable belief of Prussian dominance within Germany. Bismarck's tenure as Prime Minister of Prussia, and later as the first Chancellor of the German Empire, was characterized by his application of real politik which is an understanding that the law of power governs the world of states, just as the law of gravity governs the physical world. Through a series of wars against Denmark, Austria, and France, he not only expanded Prussian territory, but more crucially laid the groundwork for German unification under Prussian leadership in 1871. The primary concern at the time of the paradoxically named revolutionary conservative philosophers was to navigate the delicate balance of power between conservative monarchy, the rising tide of liberalism, and socialism. Rather than resisting these forces outright, Bismarck embraced a strategy of revolutionary conservatism, aiming to steer the currents of change in a direction that safeguarded the monarchy's power and the existing social hierarchy. Bismarck's genius lay in his ability to use the tools of revolution, reform, nationalism, and even social welfare to reinforce the foundations of imperial rule, thereby ensuring the stability and longevity of the newly unified German state under Prussian leadership. While he ultimately set the stage for the modern welfare state, at the time he successfully engineered a domestic policy that would prevent a socialist revolution in Germany, as it later came to Russia and other states. 
Bismarck set up one of the earliest political false flags, as we know them today, for a pretext of war. And I use this term rather loosely because he didn't orchestrate any kind of attack, but simply edited an exchange, which was known as the Ems Dispatch, between King Wilhelm I and the French ambassador to remove all friendly and conciliatory dialogue and made it appear that the French ambassador had demanded Prussian concession on the threat of war and the king had flatly refused. The facts were true, but the tone of the conversation was completely omitted. This triggered the Franco-Prussian War of 1870 that was a result of tensions which had been building over decades. In Germany, Bismarck had ambitions for unification, transforming disparate states into a cohesive nation capable of rivaling the established powers of Europe. He recognized that war with France would unify the German states. The rivalry between France and Germany was made worse by territorial disputes, most notably over the border regions of Alsace and Lorraine, which were seen as vital to national prestige and security by both sides. Bismarck's adept manipulation of international relations, particularly through editing the Ems Dispatch to insult the French government, inflamed French public opinion and pushed Emperor Napoleon III into a corner. Faced with domestic pressure and the desire to assert French honor, Napoleon III felt compelled to declare war on Prussia. The decision was made despite clear indications that France was not adequately prepared for conflict, both militarily and diplomatically. The end result was a victory for Germany and the realization of Bismarck's goal to create the modern German state. However, Bismarck's later years were marked by increasing tension with Kaiser Wilhelm II, leading to his dismissal in 1890. His legacy, though, was permanent. The balance of power he had meticulously crafted in Europe would dominate international relations until the outbreak of World War I. His system of alliances, designed to isolate France and maintain peace through a balance of power, crumbled in the years following his departure, highlighting the extent to which peace in Europe had depended on his personal diplomacy and the sheer power of his will. The rest, as they say, is history. Before we go to our next guest, it's once again time for some music. This guest will be controversial with the audience, I think, a point of view that almost every listener may disagree with, but I think it's important on RCR to be able to talk to people on both sides of the issues and get first-hand explanations. Maori rights activist Joe Trinder will join us to make his case for co-governance and redress for the grievances of the past. I note that this is not a debate, but a dialogue. However, first, some more music. We will listen to the Rohan themes composed by Howard Shore for Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings films. Our previous guest, Isaac, did mention how he was inspired by J.R.R. Tolkien's writing and his views on the right place of fiction and escapism in our lives to bring something useful back to the real world. We'll be back right after this music. Welcome back to The Dialogue with Diwa DeBoer on Reality Check Radio. You can text us on 2057 or email your feedback to inbox at realitycheck.radio. And I'm joined here by Joe Trinder, and I'll uh, let him introduce himself, and then we'll get into the questions. Oh, kia ora, Diwa. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. So my name's Joe Trinder. I'm woke elite Māori of the highest order, sheeple, left heart, commie, and other insults. And George Soros pays me a small fortune to express these views. And that's your, your Twitter bio. 
Is there anything else you want to tell us about organizations that you're involved in maybe and some kind of background beyond just being part of the Maori elite? Um, yeah, so not really involved in any organizations at the moment, just just um, we've got a think tank, the Maori elite, um, that's going to try and contest the, the Atlas Network. Right, so you're up against the Atlas Network that's, mm-hmm. uh, that David Seymour is involved in, the grand, the grand Conspiracy, and they're putting forward a treaty principles bill which I've seen you argue basically they're going to redefine the treaty, right? So the argument that that is coming from Maori is that they shouldn't be allowed to just say, this is what the treaty means. You actually want input or you know you have a view of what the treaty means. So can you give us a little bit of an overview of that? Well, I think when you think of the principles of the Treaty of Waitangi, you've got to take it from the context of what Aotearoa was like in 1840. So there's about 100,000 Māori in the land, they control this land, they have sovereignty, they are the law of the land, and there's probably about maybe 2,000 British tourists. They don't consider themselves New Zealanders at all, they consider themselves British subjects. And so when Hobson turns up, he's making an agreement with two parties, the British royal family and the chiefs and tribes. So it's not it's not race-based privilege, <laughs> is what some people claim. It's an agreement between between the United Tribes and and also the British royal family. And then when we get into what I guess the articles themselves say and what some you know disagreements about what the treaty might say, in the first article we basically have a statement that the the government of New Zealand will be given to the, the Queen, to her governor and so on, her government, which is eventually became the New Zealand government. Is that contested? Do you disagree that you know, there, there are obviously people like to argue about what does the English say, what, what's written in Te Reo or, and so on? But I think the general, there seems to be a general agreement that at least the government of New Zealand is as a legitimate authority over all, all people in New Zealand, over the affairs of the whole country. Is that something you agree with? So the, um, going back to 1840, there are nine treaty documents and they're just not all the Treaty of Waitangi, uh, the Treaty of, say, Manukau, Tafia. And so of the nine different treaty articles, there is only one that is written in English. And this one that was signed by about 36 chiefs or something, 33, mm-hmm. um, offers, offers sovereignty to Queen Victoria. The other ones, what they do that are in Te Reo Māori, they offer kawanatanga, which is the right to govern. It's not sovereignty. So if you were to look at it in like a realistic way and you've got these chiefs and they're signing it, then they're not going to be signing a document that gives away sovereignty and all of their power away to to a civilization. They're not going to give the sovereignty away of their civilization away at all, that's just—it's really unrealistic that that scenario happened, or even that there's no record of Hobson explaining that to anyone or any of the signatories of the Treaty of Waitangi. I was reading in William Williams' diary, essentially, where he ex- was explaining to his bishop later on, I think five or six years later, who he was being asked, "Did you explain to the chiefs what they were signing? What was in the treaty? Did you?" lay this out to them. And he said very specifically, he said, yes, I, I explained to them what was in the treaty and they all understood it. And 
he says specifically, and he's not speaking about sovereignty in here, but he's saying he's specifically saying he explained about the governor would be governing over all of New Zealand, the establishment of what would be an authority over the top of the chiefs. They understood that. And then if we get to 20 years after the treaty, say the Kohimaramara conference, again, we see these chiefs who are there say, yes, the queen is the head of New Zealand. Some of them use the term sovereignty, others don't. But the general idea being that they understand that there is a, a higher level of authority. And that seems to be something that is well understood at that point by the chiefs at the time. Yeah, so there's a there's a problem with the Kohimarama conference is that it is held by Governor Gore Brown. The, the rangatira there are not kind of the top tier rangatira. And a lot of the kōrero that's there is, is not recorded of the individual rangatira. It's basically Governor Gore Brown, and he is he's dictating the terms of what the situation is. And and so I think that there, that was kind of a shambolic hui, the Kohimarama conference. And the fact that you're coming up to about the, three years before the invasion of the Waikato, tensions rising, the colonists are wanting desperately to take land all through South Auckland and into the Waikato and take it for themselves. So this is on the verge of mass land confiscation and the alienation of Māori land. Mm-hmm. So I don't hold a lot of hope that there was a lot of reality happening in the Kohimarama conference. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But when when war did break out, there were many tribes who did side with the crown, with the colonists. And I think there is you know, general, it was accepted by, especially by the missionaries who were in the Waikato at the time, that, they, that the government was acting wrongly, right? The government was trying to uh, elevate tensions, that it was breaching its obligations, right? But the eventual war that did happen resulted in, in a defeat for Maori and you know the ones who were fighting against the crown they were well, effectively conquered right so they in your own i guess in their in their own traditions and so on war was very frequent if you went to war and you lost then you were conquered by the enemy is that something that's accepted or is it is it rejected because they see that as a basically a, a betrayal that they were attacked yeah there were there were multiple chiefs that went to went to war on the side of the british they fought along the British, they were paid soldiers, and some of them were even officers that could give orders orders to European infantrymen, Urupata Wahawa. Yeah, no, there's no denial that there that there were multiple iwi that split in half and ended up in civil war like Napui or Natipuro, and one side was on the side of the of the British Empire and the other side was on the side of the Kingitanga. It's it's no, it's not in dispute. So there are obviously some people who deny that the New Zealand government did anything wrong, but I'm <laughs> putting that aside, I disagree with those people as well. How do we move past that then? How do we get to the twenty first century and get to a understanding of how New Zealand society is supposed to work? And specifically like what is wrong, I guess, with the proposed treaty principles that David Seymour wants to put forward. Is it just that he's excluding any mention of Maori, any any mention of iwi or hapu 
from his treaty principles, or is it is is there you have a very fundamental disagreement with the idea that he sort of laid down that each we should have one principle to represent each of the three articles and say the New Zealand government has a right to govern all of New Zealand. We're you know recognised absolute chieftainship for all New Zealanders. That seems to be the contentious part because that's obviously not really what the treaty meant at the time. And then you know the third article and the third principle saying that all New Zealanders actually have the same rights. Is there is it is there a disagreement with the substance of those articles beyond the erasure of, of Maori? Like if they included, say, Article 2 said, hey, we recognize that we have the absolute chieftainship over their property as well as individuals as, alongside. Is it the erasure of a collective recognition that you're upset by or are you upset by the whole thing? So I spoke to uh, Professor Margaret Mutu about this and she explained it to me really well as what the situation is with David Seymour's interpretation of the principles of the Treaty of Waitangi is he's taking individual sentences and he's taking them out of context. So if you were to take that last sentence in Article 3 and you're not putting it in context with Article 1 that it's specifically directed at the chiefs and tribes, the entire treaty is directed at the chiefs and tribes it's not directed at British New Zealanders of the 21st century. So the beef that I have with Seymour's principles of the Treaty of Waitangi is that what he's doing is he's trying to in, trying to turn it into a universal suffrage document like the Magna Carta or the United States Declaration of Independence. It's not. What the Treaty of Waitangi is actually about, it's about the preservation of indigenous rights for the Polynesian people of Aotearoa who, who are Māori. And the reason why the colonial office was actually trying to negotiate these sets of this agreement with, with the chiefs and tribes was because they could see how devastating the British Empire was on indigenous people all throughout the empire. It was, it was at war with Aboriginal people, it was wiping out um, thousands of people across the Indian subcontinent, North America, Native people were getting were just getting eradicated. So by the time that 1840 had come, they realized that the colonial office couldn't keep on going through through with this. It needed to try and form a treaty based on indigenous rights. Mm-hmm. And I think earlier on I referred to translator of the treaty is William Williams, because actually Henry Williams. And something while I was reading his notes, he actually does refer to the treaty as the Magna Carta of the people of New Zealand, the Aborigines of New Zealand. So that was something he really did have in mind, that it would be like a, a Magna Carta document. But when I was looking, if you look back at the Magna Carta and the US Constitution and so on, they aren't really universal documents when they're written. The Magna Carta is really an agreement between the king and the barons and the bishops. And it's sort of over the centuries became recognized as a basis for individual rights. It became, it, it was taken up as a universal document. And similarly to the US Constitution, very famously likes to talk big about everybody having rights, but it really was about white men having rights. It basically allowed slavery to continue at the time and there was no universal suffrage in it. But it, people today, everyone in America can look back at the Constitution and say, yeah, it's, it applies to me, even though at the time it didn't. People can look back at the Magna Carta and say, this can apply to me as well. So is there, do you not see a future where anybody in New Zealand could look back at the Treaty of Waitangi and say, well, this can also be 
you know, we need, we, this is an important document about rights. Yes, for Maori, but can actually be applied or should be applied to everyone. Yeah, well, it's really difficult for Maori to accept that. There's 66,000 um, million hectares of land in this country, and probably about 60 million of it's been confiscated off Maori. And that's through warfare, uh, legislative theft. And it's, it's policies like the New Zealand Settlements Act, the Public Works Act, and even low-level borough councillors were capable of alienating vast acres of, of Māori land. And the thing is, is that the Treaty of Waitangi has basically been ignored for 150 years. And then finally, we start to acknowledge it with the last Labour government, and then all of a sudden... There's people who are complaining that they feel that they're becoming that they're becoming second second class citizens, and it's not the case. That I think as a nation, all New Zealanders actually need to look at honouring the Treaty of Waitangi, and there will not be any disadvantage for other New Zealanders. And I think that's what the fear is: is they're really worried that they're going to be missing out on something that the Maldives are going to be getting and no one else is going to be getting. It, it's not the case. It's what, what people like myself are trying to practice as a form of civil rights called indigenous rights. We're not trying to get, we're not trying to bleed the taxpayer or trying to swindle people or grift is what the accusations are. It's genuinely we want to practice mana motahaki, where we get to, where we get for Māori to make decisions for Māori, as opposed to colonial New Zealand making decisions for Māori. And to expand on that a little bit, I guess one of the points of conflict has happened around water, and the claim say Māori own the water, or they're trying to take over the water. I guess. From what you're describing here, it seems to be, can we have a situation where in a more local setting, you have control over the water in, in, a, you know, in a geographic area that is still mostly owned by Maori? Or is there a really, I guess, the problem that people who are listening to this are thinking, things like three governance, things like co-governance, sorry, three waters and co-governance, they're thinking Maori are taking all the water and they're going to be in control of it, and then we don't have any input into what happens with the water, right? Then, then people feel like they're missing out because so you're saying, okay, all the water in the, in in all of New Zealand belongs to Maui. So, I think there's a lot of chicken little going on here that the sky is going to fall in. For Maori, they were actually promised undisturbed estates, forests, and fisheries, and so in that is waterways, water. Um, any any kind of area that you can fish, and that would be remain undisturbed. It was what was agreed upon. Now, there's, this is the difference between colonial society and indigenous society: is that Maori have a mentality towards water of manakitanga, where we are the where the guardians of this 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 what we call tonga or treasure of water. We don't have Māori don't have a mentality of exploiting it, bottling it, and selling it off overseas. They actually want to protect these waterways and 
turn them back into fisheries. And if you were to look at all of the lakes and rivers across the North Island, they're all contaminated due mm-hmm. to commercialization of the dairy industry. Intensive dairy intensive dairy industry has absolutely contaminated most of the waterways and rivers across the North Island. What I think the problem is here is that commercial interests want to contest the idea that Māori will have a say in what happens in the preservation of waterways and, and water and that that there'll, there'll be a compromise in democracy. But honestly, it was what was agreed upon before there was democracy in this land. Mm. So I guess that leads to the concern that people have and the pushback that you, you will get and, and are getting is then if you say, well, commercial interests are not the most important thing and the changes are going to be commercially negative, then you may get into a situation where people start leaving or giving up on farming or fleeing the country, right? And this has happened in other places that have decolonized. They've suffered massive economic collapse, basically. People fleeing the country, a vicious cycle where everybody ends up worse off because of the, of the drastic changes that have taken place. And similarly, when you say, well, you know, these, the treaty was agreed before there was democracy in New Zealand, which is true, but we have a system of democracy now. And if you aren't able to reconcile those two things, then or you or people feel like you're going to take away their democracy, well, you, that's, they see that as a declaration of war, right? Okay, you're going to take our democracy away. We're, we'll no longer get a democratic say. I don't see a situation where you can bring people along with you to agree to what you're proposing. Well, if you put it this way, say we take modern-day Britain and they have a class of entitlement over there of a certain family that doesn't have to pay taxes, is the head of state, and they're born into that into that race-based privilege. And it's the, probably the biggest form of race-based privilege on the planet. And then they have a house in their parliament called the House of Lords, and they actually have, they can decline legislation that's coming from the House of Commons and they also are not democratically elected into those roles. But when Māori on the other side of the planet asked to have an agreement that was agreed upon at the founding of this nation, where in reality Māori should be 100% doing the decision-making on water, the fact that they're just offering to share it, because that what was agreed on, undisturbed estates, forests and fisheries. There's no other way to interpret that. If there's a mountain there, Māori own own that. If there's a river there, there's a beach there, Māori own that. Unless you've come along and specifically confiscated it or you have brought that 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 piece of landscape, then um then Māori don't have a say on it. But, but, so the treaty does specifically have a you know, a, a clause about Selling those things to the to the government at the time, or that the government would have the right of preemption, which was you know later given up from the from the treaty. But the the treaty does did include a mechanism for things to be sold. So is the, is there a big dispute then over what's been sold, what hasn't been sold? Obviously, the Waitangi Tribunal has dealt with a lot of claims, and there are you know, different views on what was confiscated, what was legally purchased, what was taken in war. At what point do you say, okay? 
I'm I'm living here in my house. You can say, well, okay, I'll, you know, that was stolen land. It's gonna I'm gonna take it back. There have been cases, for instance, I think we're with a positive resolution, like a national park. Maybe it's a good example where it still is recognized as being owned by the local iwi and also owned, you know, part of a public space for all New Zealanders. I, I believe that's the resolution for national park. I could be wrong. Or is that all in dispute to you? Do you think is all land, all purchases, everything is suspect, everything can be litigated? No, I mean, it, I think Māori and iwi leaders are quite realistic about it. If people have private land and they have homes on that land, then that there should go through a process of redress. And it has. It has through the Waitangi Tribunal where where um, where that's kind of starting to get resolved. But what you're talking about with uh, Dockland and National Parks is co-governance. And co-governance was actually brought in by the national government as a form of power sharing because through through redress, et cetera, they found out that Māori weren't so bad, they weren't the boogeyman that they were thinking of and they weren't going to fleece everything. Māori had that kind of guardianship mentality where they want to preserve the land and and do the best for our for our native forests and wildlife and yeah. I guess if you run into into problems there with say an area is closed off or some water is mismanaged. Right now, you know, if if the beaches are polluted in Auckland, which many of them are, it's the council's fault. It's effectively nobody's fault, right? The government can do whatever it wants. But if Maori are governing these assets, well, then people are going to have fingers to point and say, rather than it being, oh, well, it's just a bureaucracy. If the government thinks, oh, look, it's the, it's that iwi, they've stuffed it up. Uh, people like to point fingers as, are we not just going to be creating more problems? Yeah, well, that's gonna that's inevitability is um is that there's pollution and and there's some organization that to blame. Um that will happen. I don't think so that that Ewe will kind of deny it if they're at fault. I think they but what they would they often do is if there is a situation where there's mass pollution they'll put on it what's called arahui, where they ask the public just to stay away from the area until until the arahui is lifted. One of the accusations that's, that's been thrown at members of the government, uh, since it's been said that we have the most number of people of Maori descent in, in the government, in the cabinet, but the accusation thrown from the opposition is that they're plastic Maori, they're not authentic. So what makes somebody an authentic Maori and a non-authentic Maori? Well, if, like, if you take people like Casey Costello, who I think is quite colonised, she was the leader of Hobson's Pledge, I don't think so that she is there to advocate on behalf of Te Ao Māori. I think that she's there to advocate on behalf of elderly British New Zealanders who are inclined to vote for New Zealand first. So you, you've kind of got two kind of mentality in there. You've got those who are prepared like Willie Jackson and Bawari Waititi who are there to fight for Indigenous rights, which is a form of civil rights. And then you have people like Casey Costello and and Nicole McKee who 
are there and they stand opposed to Indigenous rights. So I just think that it's two ideologies in there of people who have Maori genetics but have a different take on it. So you see, basically, you think people need to actually embrace their culture, their heritage specifically to be authentic. Like it's not just, it's not really just a genetic thing. The genetic part is not as relevant as being culturally immersed in a certain mindset and identifying in a certain way. Well, in my view, I think that it's patriotic to want to honour Te Tiriti o Waitangi. I think that it's the founding document of our nation. And I think if you oppose it, I think you're being unpatriotic, regardless of your ancestry or whakapapa. And I think that if you fight for it and fight for Indigenous rights, I think you're a patriot and um, and I think you're a great New Zealander. <laughs> All right, we'll see what the listeners of the show think about that. Uh, you can text your thoughts to 2057 and email your feedback and your angry letters to inbox at realitycheck.radio. We've got uh, Joe Trinder here, member of the self-proclaimed Maori elite, and we're getting close to wrapping this up, but I've got a few more questions for you. Or more recently on the show, I've had conversations with people who have come, who have either been, say, just, I guess, specifically, uh, recently I spoke to somebody from South Africa, an Afrikaner, a minority there, and talking about solutions and the struggles that they're having. And their focus is very much on building solutions for their people and their identity that are separate from the state. They don't want to rely on the state. They've given up sort of, okay, we're not going to control the whole country. We're a minority. We just want to be able to live in our own areas with our own culture and preserve that in, in that way. I also spoke with somebody from Europe who pointed out that Europe also has many European countries have in their constitutions recognition for what they call historic minority. So smaller groups of Europeans within countries who you know, get some of their own recognition in terms of their own language, their own schooling, some of their own culture, sometimes even provincial control, local control over the area that they live in within the country. And the approach that does, you know, from what you've said here, that doesn't really seem to be an approach that's interesting or is going to be pursued by Maori. It really is something you're interested in at a high level. Or are there groups within Maoridom who are trying to do this local small focus to say the government is not when you know we're never going to take over the country as it were. We're never going to get what we really want and we're just going to focus on our own our own people in our own little area. Are you talking about liberalism? We're not talking about liberalism here. No, no, I'm talking about people building cultural ethnic communities in a in a small geographic location. So that they can govern that place however they want, kind of an autonomy, like an autonomous city or a, an autonomous region within a particular country. Does, does that make sense to you? Have you heard about yeah. that, that um, general idea? So we have a word for that. It's um, manamotahaki or kind of self-determination. And I think that it is, um, I think that it's a brilliant idea. I think that's the strengthening of democracy in reality where individual interest groups or ethnicities form their own self determination because put it this way had adolf hitler had gone back to austria and he had tried to become the the chancellor of austria the austrians wouldn't have taken over europe but when you get big large nations like germany that managed to pull together a whole lot of smaller ethnicities and form big nations then they become power blocks and then they can start to take over 
Europe and they can invade Russia and start world wars. If you expand, we need more space and more for all of our people and we keep expanding our territory. Precisely. But if you if you break up a society into different little hegemonies and they all have self-determination, it's harder to start a big war. <clears throat> Absolutely. I, I would like to explore this idea with you a little bit more in, in the future. I think it's it's a really interesting concept to go into. But that's, I guess, uh, going. To, I'm going to leave that for another time, I think, because it is quite an elaborate subject and we'll just leave it here. Uh, thank you very much for having joined me to talk about the the treaty principles, your view on the Treaty of Waitangi and how it should be honoured. Also describing a little bit about what you know, decolonization might look like and, and co-governance. So thank you very much for coming on RCR. And I hope that we can have another conversation about this in the future if the uh, the listeners are interested to know more. Kia ora. Thanks, Duba. All right. All listeners, please stay tuned. We will be right back after this break. Taking part in conversations and discussions to help find resolutions for the issues of today. This is The Dialogue with Dewa DeBoer. I hope you enjoyed that interesting interview. Joe was certainly very friendly, uh, but I do think he gave a good explanation of the other side, as we often tout on RCR, uh, although he did keep very much to academic arguments, especially in places where I tried to push for just a little bit more. I didn't want to derail the interview by nitpicking, but I am sure a number of listeners will text in with plenty of complaints about what was said. The point, again, I said it wasn't for an argument or a debate, but really to listen to his side of the political issue. And I hope I achieve that. He was a bit selective about the English text of the treaty. No sovereignty in the first article, but yes to the estates, forestries, and fisheries from the second. He's also very dismissive of Casey Costello and her vision of one people, the merging of a kind of Anglo-Maori identity. It's not just about votes. It is a genuine hope that she has, and they are wrong to dismiss that. He's also dismissive of the building and settlers that the pioneers did calling everyone from the earliest pioneer to the last person to get off the plane in New Zealand a colonizer, ignores the blood, sweat, and tears of nation-building that went on by those pioneers, whose descendants see themselves very much as New Zealanders, a new ethnicity with this as their home, and very much distinct from more recent waves of immigration. But there are a few common elements that I think some progress can be made on, some support for localism and decentralization that I think many iwi would benefit from uh, if they pushed the national government and current coalition to uh, develop that a little bit more. Because I think this is where co-governance really falls apart politically. It relies on top-down solutions, control of effectively everything. And uh, things could be negotiated at a far more local level with people uh, depending on their particular needs, depending on the geographic area, there are solutions that can be uh, perhaps compromises that could be agreed upon. When you focus on centralization and top-down control, you can lose everything that you worked on with a single stroke of a pen. And I don't think that the left has really accepted how much that swung the election against them. 
I also don't think the listeners will appreciate the arguments against democracy that he made, but I'm glad Joe was very open about this. New Zealand would have to become less democratic for a lot of this co-governance and decolonization to work. The English lords that he brought up are a good example, but they're also traditional remnants from a time when these lords had real power. Englishmen now talk about getting rid of the lords because the aristocratic vigor is gone. I think he has a hard road to advocate for putting Maori aristocracy in charge of things. An aristocracy has to earn its place in society. Arguing that there was a treaty 180 years ago is not really enough to claim aristocratic status and the power that goes with it. Maori certainly had this capacity in 1840, but we can't simply resurrect it. The chiefs certainly could not have imagined the scale of demographic change that would come to New Zealand, but it did. There's no going back. And that's a lesson for today as well. Before we move on to our next interview with Marcus from the Zelandia Heritage Foundation, let's listen to something by Ludwig van Beethoven as pastoral from Symphony Number no. 6 in F major, played here by the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra. Welcome back to Reality Check Radio. You're listening to The Dialogue with Dewey de Boer. I've got Marcus here. He's a young co-founder of the Zelandia Heritage Foundation. There are a group of young people dedicated to preserving the past, present, and future of New Zealand's cultural artifacts. Welcome to the show, Marcus. Uh, thank you, Dewey, for having me on. So, yeah, my name is Marcus. I'm basically the graphic designer for Zelandia Heritage Foundation. Many of the the work we've done with Zelandia Heritage Foundation, mostly graphic work, that's the stuff that I do. Uh, I make content and I, I write articles. You might also know me from my Twitter account with the handle at Boogie38. It's a bit of a silly name, uh, but that's what we're running with. And <laughs> um, yeah, so... You're a young guy, and I remember being sort of your age, getting into a little bit of politics, uh, you know, trying to organize things. And I went on the radio to, uh, was with Leighton Smith uh, at the time, and he was on Newstalk ZB, and I did an interview with him. I, if I look back at that interview now, over 10 years later, it was, I probably would die of cringe uh, listening to it. So yeah, I encourage you that you're making a good start here. The work that I've seen from you on social media, the graphics, you know, the graphics that you've done uh, promoting some of New Zealand's heritage uh, is really great. So you, at least it's great looking work. Yeah, well, it's, uh, I'm, I'm 18. It's, uh, it's a pretty young start right now, but um, I'm going to hit the ground running with this, hopefully. So about over one year ago, I met some people online with very similar kind of patriotism for New Zealand, and not just New Zealand as it is now, but as it was. That's basically New Zealand's old culture and old heritage stuff. We like to dig around in archives and, and get, get the stuff in the archives. And it's nice having that for ourselves, but I think it's, it's important to to share it with other New Zealanders as well, because what we were noticing was a, I suppose, a lack of representation, but a lot of a lack of cultural unity in New Zealand, because I don't think many European New Zealanders know, know who they are or where they come from. So one year ago with, with my friend, 
NZ Appreciator on Twitter, we started plotting out a plan for the Zealandia Heritage Foundation. And it took a very long time. We, we went back on a lot of things and we changed a lot of things up. But at the start of this year, we, we started the account on Twitter and on Instagram and Facebook and Telegram. And it's been about two months now since we released it. The, the Twitter account has gone from, of course, zero to 400 or almost 400 now. Uh, so we've seen massive growth in that, and that's just us posting uh, us posting graphics of poetry and of music of New Zealand creators, but not just from recent times, but from you know the 1800s and stuff. This is a lot of the stuff that doesn't actually get publicly produced and given to an audience of people who are looking for New Zealand heritage. Mm-hmm. Well, definitely, I can say that a lot of what I've seen you guys dig up is stuff that I haven't seen before, and I like I like digging around as well. So it, the the job that you're doing on that front is really awesome. Yeah, well, it's definitely a, a huge hobby for for us. Uh, me and the me and the, the I suppose the chairman of our organization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and some of it's a bit interesting as well. Some some wild stuff back in there when you dig back through history. It's always things that wouldn't be said today definitely no definitely not i mean there look there has been cases in the zelandia heritage foundation where i've been talking to to the chairman he says look we've found this we found this this heritage product here and oh, it's, it's very nice but it is very very um it's not pc at all and there is actually there, there actually are issues where some of the things people say in poetry oh so long ago actually can't be produced or, or published on places like Twitter, even though Twitter, for example, has has loosened up a little bit. So we do uh we do we do have to tiptoe around, but we do have those um we do have the hard stuff as well. And you've got some interesting articles up on your Substack as well. I saw an interesting post about the origin of New Zealand's regional holidays, which was really good. I didn't even know now why do we celebrate Auckland Day? For instance, here in Auckland, or people in Wellington celebrating Wellington, I think there's a Wellington Day, and so on, Canterbury. Many of these regional holidays, I had no idea why, why I was celebrating Auckland Day until I saw that post on your Substack that it was related to William Hodson actually landing here. Yeah. Oh, uh, there's um, you know these days, we I think there's so many there's so many regional days in New Zealand that that they don't have. Um, we haven't kept up the the traditions and norms associated with them. We don't. We're all, we're almost not encouraged to to do so much. If if it's a regional holiday, maybe it's an excuse to not go to work. It's a, it's a day off essentially, and you might use that to go to the pub or whatever. But what we do want to see is we want to see people embracing these days and and celebrating the the regions on these days as well. I'm I'm not I'm not always perfect with that. But I did make an attempt this year on uh, on Wellington Day, and we produced a a poem for that to publish. So you know, it's like we do post New Zealand heritage and and cultural artifacts, but we do the the past, present, and future of that as well. So it's good to it's good to make culture instead of uh, instead of just relying on what has been done. Excellent, and that's one of the the three key parts of my show. 
one of the reasons why we started the dialogue here on RCR was to talk about culture in that way as well, that uh, what was culture in the past and how are we creating culture moving forward. So it's great to hear you guys focusing on that. And a question that probably has come to the minds of many listeners is, of course, like what what or who is Zealandia? Why not just New Zealand? I was surprised to know to find out that people don't actually know who and what Zealandia means. So I'd like you to give some explanation to the audience for that. Yeah, it's not a common thing to talk about, but I suppose one of the things that I'd like to mention first off, and uh, my my chairman would say this a few times, NZ Appreciator would say this, New Zealand is, is quite a unique name and it's actually a very prophetic name because Abel Tasman, he came to, to New Zealand and he named New Zealand. And of course, it's an, it's an island in the middle of, not, not the middle of the Pacific Sea, but it's next to the, the, the Pacific Ocean. And it, it's, it's such a vast ocean. And we're, we're, we're right in that, just in the ocean there. So, so obviously, yeah, there's New Zealand. And so that's, that's pretty, it's on the nose there. It's pretty obvious. But, but what he mentioned to me was that New Zealand is quite a, a prophetic name because, you know, so long ago, New Zealand, obvious, 2020 comes along, scientists are coming out and they're saying, hey, there's actually an eighth continent and uh, we, we call this continent Zealandia. And it, it, it is prophetic because we're right there in the sea, but there's, there's land underneath the sea. We are, we are the eighth continent. And so yes. that's a very unique thing. That's quite cool. Like we're almost like the the mountain range on top of this giant continent that's sunk yeah, exactly. beneath you. We are we're Atlantis. Yeah. <laughs> we're hoping for a reverse climate change. We're yeah. uh, <laughs> we can the, then we'll we'll expand the boundaries of New Zealand yeah. for sure. Yeah, things would change a lot from there. But that that's uh that's one thing to mention just there. But I suppose if you searched up Zealandia. The first thing that would come to you is the the eighth continent, but the the things that came before that, Zealandia as the personification of New Zealand. Many of you will probably be familiar with the idea of Britannia as the personification of Britain, and Zealandia's relationship with Britannia is that it's the daughter of of Britannia, and uh, we we have this personification of of New Zealand is Zealandia. And so long ago, you know, in the 18th century, or sorry, the, the 19th century, this was played on quite a lot. We had um, the first national anthem of New Zealand was actually called All Hail Zealandia. And we do, we do have a few recordings of that in, in some places, but it, I don't think that it's ever been done or commissioned by the government, but I think it should be commissioned by the government in a way because it was our first national anthem and it hasn't been done like truly professionally with all the right bells and whistles there. It, there's a there's a future project for you then. You know, I'll see if I can find yeah. a decent recording for the show. I'll play it for the audience later if we get the chance. But yeah, if there is no good modern recording, it's going to have to be done by someone. Exactly. Yeah, no, it definitely has to be done, but it, it yeah. does take a lot of money. And one of the, the, the way, I mean, people actually see Zealandia, the personification of New Zealand, quite often. You know, where is she used? Where does she appear in, in even modern New Zealand society? Well, I think you can actually find her very often. And I suppose the, the most common one is just on our coat of arms. We have Zealandia standing next to the tribal chief and 
you know, there'll be designs of of some woman in a in a white in a white robe, and you'll think, oh, who's this woman? You don't know that woman because she's not been introduced to you yet. Her name is Zealandia. And it's a it's a very old New Zealand tradition of, of having this woman there, and she does have a name. It's not just some generic woman. And she looks like someone in the in the twentieth century. There was a switch, so there are two different looks for Zelandia, right? Can you tell us a little bit about the story behind that? I don't think I can. Oh, okay. Well, I'll, I'll, here's my chance to shine then. Right. Um, the original. Zelandia actually had uh, was a redhead. She had red hair, and but then in the 1940s or 50s, the coat of arms was actually redesigned. And mm-hmm. the reason it was redesigned is that the prime minister at the time, I think, it was Peter Fraser. He wasn't happy with how Zelandia looked too Soviet. She looked a little bit too much like those Soviet posters of these uh, Soviet women. And he wanted her redesigned to look more graceful. So they redesigned her and modeled after Grace Kelly. And uh, Grace Kelly was an American actress and the princess consort of Monaco. So from the early, early 20th century. So that was, she was, I guess, a popular actress at the time. I never really heard of her outside of this context, but perhaps some of the older listeners have. And so our coat of arms and the personification of, of Zelandia was was remodeled to uh, look like this American actress. That's a very interesting. I've never heard of that. I I did not hear of that. Maybe you can help us out. Yeah, yeah I'm, maybe you can I'm make gonna, notes for us. I'm going to have to write a story about this. I guess now, uh, now yeah. that I've, I've I've brought it up, and it, it was yeah one of the things that I came across because I did do a little look into the code, New Zealand coat of arms a while ago, and that mm. was one of the things that I found out about one of the scandals. People complained about that, you know, she, the Zealand is often represented as a blonde woman, but she actually was originally a, a redheaded woman. Yeah. Yeah. And looking at those old, um, you know, there was obviously competitions for the design of the New Zealand coat of arms. So you could see a variation of the, of the, the, the designs of Zealandia as well. We actually haven't posted these, but we do have them. Uh, we do have them saved. One of the first actions that I saw you guys take was a, taking part of a protest against the removal of a statue. And this has actually sadly been happening in New Zealand for a few years. Uh, It started off, obviously, in the United States with BLM spread to the United Kingdom. A lot of old statues are being removed. And unfortunately, this has happened in New Zealand. The statue of Captain Hamilton in the city of Hamilton was taken down a few years ago. I wrote about it on the Right Minds blog. And even to this day, statues are being removed. So there was the statue of the weeping woman in Whanganui, which you protested against. Could you uh, give me a little bit of a background on that? I, I have connections with some people who, who know people. And it was Julian Batchelor with Stopco Governance who, was, uh, who, who began organizing this protest against the removal of our weeping woman in, in Whanganui. And our weeping woman is a was a statue erected, I think, in eighteen seventy or eighteen seventy seven or eighteen sixty seven, and she was erected due to the Battle of Moutor. And the the Battle of Moutor was a war between the upriver Maori and the the low river Maori. And the upriver Maori were attacking the the, the Wanganui settlement. The reason that they wanted to do this, actually, and it was quite, it's quite interesting because 
the upper of the Māori were the pai mariru, or the, the ho-ho. And the, the ho-ho had a, a strange Christian cultic sect, which, which held that I think it was the, the Archangel Gabriel said to the Māori that um, basically the Pākehā don't belong in, 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 in New Zealand and they need to be, they need to be pushed out. And so they they took that quite literally, and they uh, they they took to trying to push the Pakeha out of Wanganui settlement. Another interesting thing that I I noted about the um, the ho ho the Paimarere Maori, well, it was that in their faith there was a vision, but I think it was Te Ua Homene. He he had a vision. I think that the bullets that the the Maori were shot by by Pakeha. If the if the Maori were shot by Pakeha with bullets, the Pai Maori Maori, then the bullets wouldn't hurt them because God had their side. Apparently, <laughs> um, that obviously wasn't true in the end. As I said, the the lower of a Maori were we'd call them loyalists to the Wanganui settlement, and they defended the Wanganui settlement. I think it was eighteen casualties of the lower of a Maori and fifty casualties of the Pai Maori. And so, so basically, the statue is there to commemorate the lives lost of the of those who defended the Wanganui settlement. And it says it's engraved on the statue. It says, roughly, uh, it says the statue is dedicated to those brave men who fought in the Battle of Moutor against the the fanatic barbarism of basically the Hoho. And that was an issue to. I'm not actually sure who this was an issue to, but it was it was the fact that it was referred to as as fanatical and barbaric that the Maori wanted to to drive out Pakeha from the Wanganui settlement. That they politically, yeah, politically incorrect language. Yeah, it was, it was politically incorrect language, and I'm not sure exactly who even said it was. Uh, who, who it was that said to the council, "Yeah, we we need to remove this." Yeah, they have but professional the, activists, professional activists, and professional protesters who want to, you know, destroy New Zealand heritage. Yeah, yeah, there's there's definitely people like that. I'm not I'm not sure to what extent this was even a protest that Maori had against the statue's removal. I think it was all a bit silly. But yeah, anyways, I organised for the protests with alongside Julian Bachelor at Stock Co Governance. And I, I did the designs for these posters and, and that advertising stuff. We received quite good engagement for that, and uh, we we turned up at the protest, and it was a it was a reasonable turnout of about forty fifty people, which uh, which I was I was very happy with. We came there for a cause, and uh, we were all there. So to me, that's a that's a very good win. But I think in the end, the the council seems to say that. Despite our protests, they're, 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 I think they're going to remove it. The person who was representing the council came up on stage and and explained that the person who was supposed to be coming from the council, because she was representing the council and not from the council, the person who was coming uh, could, could not come due to reasons. And, you know, we asked her what she thought of it. Like, what, what did she think about the fact that it was being removed and what we we noticed from her explanation was that, you know, it's a oh, it's such a beautiful statue, and it's it's been carved so wonderfully. But it's not about like what it looks like and how beautifully it's carved. It's 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 certainly maybe a part of it, but the fact is that they were removing 
a piece of heritage or a piece of history from Wanganui and it was very foundational to to Wanganui. Mm, absolutely. If there are listeners in Wanganui, it's probably not too late to, to write to your council to complain about the removal of the statue of the weeping woman. And if they do get rid of it, go and have a look at it because that may be the last chance that you get if they uh, if if the council can't be stopped. If you would like to leave feedback as well, you can text us on 2057 or send your feedback to mailboxrealitycheck.radio. Send any further thoughts about this as well. I'd be happy to respond to them next week. You also sent a letter to Erica Stanford, the immigration minister, uh, which is another area of activism for you guys, I guess, is the high level of immigration into New Zealand. I've had a number of guests about that already, so I'm not asking for a lot of detail here, but perhaps you'd like to tell me, you know, a bunch of young people write to the immigration minister. How did that go down? Right. So I suppose the first thing that I'll explain here is because it's a political topic. The Zelandi Heritage Foundation is not just a a, uh, a publisher of New Zealand heritage, but we also do a little bit of activism. But we're focusing on one major issue at the moment, which is immigration in New Zealand, because the, the levels of immigration in New Zealand are very, very high. Um, but we're focusing on that one thing for at least for the election cycle to to put some pressure on the the people in government, you know, the National Party and ACT and NZ First. And so for that reason, we, we, we sent a, a letter to Erica Stanford demanding an end to the disastrous immigration policy of the, of the last government and the immigration policy that might still continue. We explained to her that in the year ended September 2023, and I know William McGimsey came on not long ago to talk about this. In the year ended September 2023, it showed that New Zealand accepted a population the size of Wellington City. It's uh, over 230,000 immigrants. That's Wellington City in one year to settle across in New Zealand. And what that meant, of course, is that Kiwis fleed elsewhere. We we went overseas. We went to Australian, Australia, and it was 40,000 New Zealanders leaving uh, to go other places, mostly Australia. So those New Zealanders understood that they couldn't reasonably comp- compete with the immigrants in the job market. And I think there's there's another factor at play here, which is that when New Zealanders are given the option by the government, and we saw last year in the in the Labour government where they were actually encouraging, almost encouraging New Zealanders to move to Australia, it's that you're posed with an issue. And it's that if you're not going to be staying here for the economic benefits that New Zealand potentially offers you, then what are you staying here for? And I think the main thing there at least for me and my family, is that we, we have family here and we also have ancestry and we have heritage here. If there in New Zealand is no kind of protection of our own culture and identity, especially to discern ourselves from Australians, for example, then it's going to be very, very easy for New Zealanders to move out of New Zealand and go somewhere else. What we've seen over the over the past, you know, few decades now is that it seems to us that we're we're basically being used as a we're basically being used as a, a sort of a lab rat of uh of of immigration we can we can put all these people in new zealand and new zealand's going to change from this the culture in new zealand's going to change for this 
Zealandia Heritage Foundation is about the past, present and future. And we need to use the present right now to ensure that New Zealanders have a future and a culture in New Zealand and that New Zealand is going to be recognisable by our descendants. So you mentioned New Zealand is a distinct people from, let's say, Australians. And obviously there have been many generations of Europeans living here now, mostly of English descent. Do you see yourself first and foremostly then as a New Zealander and and are you seeking to foster some sense of ethnogenesis here, which is a fancy term for kind of the birth of a new people, the creation of a new people over uh, who have lived in a particular place for several generations? That's a very, very interesting idea, the ethnogenesis thing. Uh, my ancestors on my my paternal side go back to 1840 and then on my maternal side they go back to 1860. For me especially, what I know having this history in New Zealand or ancestry in, in New Zealand is is that this really is my home. Ancestrally, I have no place to go. If, you, if you're going to think about ethnic population in New Zealand, I'm not just 30% Irish and 30% English and 30% Scottish. I am 100% New Zealander. I, I have no other home than New Zealand. And when you're speaking about ethnogenesis, I, I'm assuming what you mean is that over time in New Zealand, we have these settlers that come from 100 or 200 years ago, and over time they 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 end up mixing like naturally, quite naturally mm-hmm. that that ends up happening. And what you have is is an ethnic population that actually has no other home than than New Zealand itself. If you're so um, ethnically diverse and not not everyone's going to be ethnically diverse but they're going to have ancestors in New Zealand who really did belong here and uh and and their culture was fostered here then this is our home and and I suppose that kind of makes a, a New Zealand ethnicity in a sense because that's just who who we are and who we know ourselves to be from our, our heritage thank you for that that is a, a really great explanation and it's great to hear you feel that with your long roots that go back and you know, coming up to 200 years now. And I'd actually so- like to go back to the, the letter of to the Minister of Immigration. Uh, I went off on a, on a bit of tangent there because you mentioned ethnogenesis. But one thing that we found quite interesting is a bit of an anecdote w- which we can't prove, but the the founder or the co-founder of Zealand Heritage Foundation was was uh, was out for a out for a stroll, and he walked into a, a market, and he overheard on the radio uh, that Erica Stanford was was talking about supposedly something of of a, a message or a letter that she'd received from what she what she seemed to have quoted as an extremist group. So it's uh it, it it's good to see that the letter to the Minister of Immigration. To, to Erica Stanford, it seems to have been received, even if she did not respond to us very rudely, but instead kind of sit, sit it behind our backs on a, on a radio station. So thank you for responding without letting us know. <laughs> oh, we did hear. We, we are listening. Yeah, unfortunately, and, and I, I've interviewed other people on my show about this, uh, I'm not sure that the National Party is very serious about reducing immigration. You know, they really just see more economic units, GDP numbers go up. That's that's how they're looking at things, unfortunately. Exactly, yeah. Now, you have talked about, obviously, your focus on New Zealand history as part of 
what the Zelandi Heritage Foundation is doing. Did this come from you're missing it from from the schools? Obviously, you've just finished high school probably not too long ago, and several of your friends would be in the same boat. Did you find that there was no New Zealand history in the schools, and that's why you were looking through digging through archives and doing your own research? From my experience, being eighteen years old, just getting out of out of high school, my experience in in New Zealand history and learning was that it's just a very very gruesome topic because when we're talking about New Zealand history, it is very much not about heritage or or cultural practices of New Zealanders back in the day. It really is about land wars and stuff like that. And I really do think that what we were lacking was an explanation of what the early European New Zealander looked like and what did he do and what were his practices. But what we hear is basically the European New Zealanders or the British New Zealanders came here and there were land wars and it was gruesome and there was blood and there was blood. Blood was shed. There were, there were many, many wars. But that is the thing that takes up all of basically um, European history in New Zealand. It's this is what you are. Uh, you come from people who basically killed killed Māori or, or kill, were killing each other and then they're not actually explaining the little itty bitty details that, that actually portray New Zealand Europe as European culture as something quite romantic. There's there's art and there's music and there's performance and there's play. There's so much more than than war and we, we just don't talk about that enough. And there's obviously the pioneer work as well that then they're, they're leaving out. And I was taking my kids recently through some of the mountains and, and going through some of the old railroads and mm-hmm. they've you know, dug, dug tunnels for kilometers by hand and, and these people built infrastructure they tried to tame the wilderness many people built very remote settlements they underwent much adversity they really did build the land right when you're driving yeah. through New Zealand on those roads many of these were basically initially dug out by hand yeah. uh, so there was a massive amount of work that went into the, the blood, sweat, and tears of actually building New Zealand. Yeah. So many people don't actually understand the work that was put in. And it's that you, you, you're probably living on a swamp right now. Yeah. Had to, you're living on a swamp, yeah. dude. I'm, I'm slightly above the swamp, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> you, you probably li- Some of you probably live in a swamp right now, but it doesn't look like a swamp because uh, we did the mahi and we got the treats. Mm-hmm. That's right. And that is an important part where I live here in South Auckland. A lot of the work to make this livable was done by the English settlers and the local Maori. They actually worked together and they they drained the swamp and yeah. they, they made this area livable. Yeah. And, and again, all of that's missing from history. I find out about that now when I'm, I'm trying to find some niche information about some historical dispute. I find out the work that people were actually doing. Yeah, I, I cover many wars on, on my show as well. It's a thing that I, I enjoy learning about the, the you know the warfare and history. But that's not all of history. Warfare is a small part of, of history. It's such a shame that it's not something that most New Zealand children are exposed to. Mm. All right. Well, thank you for joining me on the show this morning. It was really great to get your insights into all of these uh, subjects. I think the listeners really enjoyed it and I'm hoping they're sending positive feedback. Is there, uh, I guess I'll give you some final encouragement as well to take this very seriously. You know, you've, you've done some very good looking work already. You guys are all young. So I, I do just recommend, you know, don't mess around. 
take it seriously as well. And people want their names and faces attached with something that they can be proud of, you know. And if 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 it's not done well, then people will, uh, you know, they'll they they don't want to be ashamed of being associated with you. And so this is. is if you're, and it's diff- it's more difficult when you're young. I've definitely been through this, and you get older, and uh, you get you get you, you you realize just how important this is. But I wanted to encourage you with that as well. And then lastly, ask: if there's anything else you want to say to wrap up, and just remind people of how they can actually follow your work. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Dewey. And I suppose the the way that you can follow me and follow the work that Zealand Heritage Foundation is by searching for at Zealandia HF on, uh, on Twitter and on Instagram and Facebook. And I think you can find a link to our Telegram in our Twitter. And I think the other thing that I'll say is to, is to follow me at Boogie38. And the person that I'm working with is Alexander at Praise the Christ on Twitter and at New Zealand Appreciator on Twitter as well. These are the people responsible for, for the good work that we've been doing recently. So so give them some support. And there's also a Zealandia HF Substack that I'll mention as well, since I enjoy reading long-form content, and, and fly, that's what I find very valuable. Of course, yes. All right. Well, that is it. Thank you very much, Marcus. It was great to hear from you. And to all of the listeners, we will be back right after this break taking part in conversations and discussions to help find resolutions for the issues of today. This is The Dialogue with Dewa DeBoer. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behavior and patterns of behavior? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. I hope you enjoyed that interview with a young New Zealand patriot who is so interested in our history and heritage. It gives me a lot of hope for the future. And in what seems to be a common theme, the government isn't doing this work. So it falls on ordinary New Zealanders to build their own parallel institutions, both for the preservation and creation of our culture. Now, in this week in New Zealand history, on March the 2nd, 1865, missionary Karl Volkner 
was killed at Apotiki. During Volkner's recent absence in Auckland, rumours had spread that he was a government spy. Locals wanted to stay away, but the Anglican priest returned to his post in Apotiki on the 1st of March and was promptly taken prisoner. He was hanged from a willow tree near his church and then decapitated. Kiriopa Tirao, a follower of the Pai Mariere cult, ate Volkner's eyes, calling one Parliament and the other the Queen and British law. This act of cannibalism outraged Europeans, as you might imagine, and Kiriopa was hunted down and executed for the murder of Karl Volkner, even though there was no evidence that he had been personally involved in the hanging. This later became the issue of a treaty settlement, and Kiriopa was posthumously pardoned in 2014. The murder of Volkner was met with a strong government response, a number of executions and land confiscations. Volkner's body was buried at his church. He was described as a man of remarkable simplicity of character, of the most single-minded and devoted piety, and extremely conciliatory and kind disposition. This was a more gruesome part of our history, but... I did enjoy reading the book series Horrible Histories as a kid, which is always described as history with the gruesome bits left in. And my oldest has just started reading them now, and he is picking up a keen interest in all things historical. So sometimes the more disturbing parts of our history are the things that interest the young children the most. Now, I found a recording of All Hail Zelandia, which was written by Francis Hopkins Velpe, with music composed by Robert Peel Crosby in 1875. It was sung as New Zealand's first national anthem for the first few decades before disappearing, along with most cultural references to the personification of Zelandia after the First World War, outside of her inclusion in our coat of arms. As Marcus said, this version is hardly the best, but it comes from a New Zealand History YouTube channel that collects up a lot of old documentary clips and songs from New Zealand's past. So we will make do with what we have. It is now time for the mailbag. My wife Amy joins us again, and there was no negative feedback about her appearance on the show no feedback at all about her specifically, actually, I think. But uh, there was some in the family WhatsApp group. So thanks to the family for that. And now over to you, Amy. Welcome back to the show. Thank you, Dior. Nice to be here again. Got quite a few messages here. So let's start with late feedback that we have here from Barbara. She says, I just wanted to say how much I enjoyed your show. You asked if anyone would be interested in a book review of a book by Ian Smith. Yes, please. Was interested to hear about the museum in Taranga. Referring to, of course, the lion and tusk. It is now on my bucket list too. Looking forward to your next show. We love RCR programs. Good luck. Well, thanks for the feedback. That was from the first show. Barbara, good to hear from you. And yes, I will do that book review at some point. I've had uh, quite a few people ask for it. So it's just a question of me actually reading the book at this stage. <laughs> and, and I've got a pile of um, a lot 
of books, at least <laughs> at least half a dozen next to my bed. And I've got a, a fresh bookshelf of about 60 or something books at the moment that are unread. So I will add that to the list. From Ali, we have a message here saying, I absolutely loved your show last week. Your style, flow and pace. I don't listen to classical music generally, but thoroughly enjoyed what you played. I was inspired to listen to Arvo Part, one of the few composers I have in my library. Well, thank you, Ali, for that feedback. I actually have to confess I'm somewhat embarrassed to say it, but I had actually not heard of Arvo Part. But I did see your feedback come into the mailbox a few days ago, and I listened to a few of his pieces and wonderful, peaceful music. What a great composer. I have made a note to play something of his in the next show, or perhaps I'll, if we have time after the show and, and this space before the next show, I might ask the engineers to put some of his on in between there. So thank you very much for that recommendation. Yes, thank you. James writes, another great show so far from Diwa. Interesting discussions and great music. Also enjoy the history component. Keep it up. Heidi writes, I love that RCR is now playing classical music. It's wonderful. Beth writes, another insightful show, Diwa. I'm learning so much from listening to RCR. I thank you. Glennis writes, I am thoroughly enjoying your show. You have had some amazing guests on and well worth listening to. It's a quality show. I thank you. Well, thank you to all of you for that kind feedback. And I do hope you also enjoyed today's guests and today's music. Hugh writes in to say, Hi, Diwa. I am really enjoying your show. It is so important that New Zealanders get informed on these issues of mass migration, identity, culture, and how population makeup affects society. European countries around the world run the risk of being permanently ruined if the native European populations continue to be replaced. France can only stay French if the French ethnic group maintains a clear majority, 75 plus percent of the population. The same applies to Norway, Britain, etc., and even the United States and New Zealand. Keep up the great work. Thank you for the feedback there, Hugh. Uh, obviously, that has been a, a subject that we've covered in a few interviews, roughly. But it should really be non-controversial, right? If the Japanese population is replaced by a population that's non-Japanese, then is it really Japan? And there are, I guess, a classic example because they're one of the few with one of the first to have had an incredibly low birth rate, right? There are more than twice as many deaths as births in Japan at the moment. And countries like South Korea are undergoing the same demographic problem. And it's, effect it's affecting all of the countries in the West and many in the East as well. But if they say their solution is simply to replace the population, well, everyone instinctively understands that those countries will cease to exist, those cultures will cease to exist. So they're probably going to have to simply accept that their population will decline until at some point it stabilizes at a lower level. And that may be very difficult, uh, it may be economically challenging, but in order for a people group and for their culture to survive, that, that's probably something that's going to be necessary. Peter writes in to say, Thank you, Diwa, for highlighting the situation in South Africa. The extent of the tragedy for all races knows no bounds. 
Sadly, it seems the West is following the same path. Olivia writes, Great discussion about South Africa, Diwa. So great to hear. A solutions-based perspective. Stunningly brave. Well, thank you, Peter and Olivia. I'm very glad you enjoyed Ernst von Zeil's interview. And yeah, absolutely, I can say again how, how inspiring it was to hear him talk about all these positive things that they're doing and how the people there were actually feeling really uh, encouraged about the future of their country simply because they had groups, grassroots movements that formed to help defend their communities and help bring solutions that the government was not bringing. And, and you had these groups stepping in to fill that, that, that gap that was left by a government that didn't care about them. And then suddenly the entire perspective of that people changed to, to instead of one, one of despair, they now have a lot of hope for the future. Patrick has a question for you. Was it an incompetent government that presented the genocide argument to the international court? I think not. Interesting question, Patrick. The And Patrick here is referring to South Africa bringing a genocide case against Israel to the International Court of Justice for their war in Gaza. And you know, that, that is now displaced over half the Gazan population, if not more, well over a million people who may never be able to go back home. Now, the case itself may have been competent. Whatever the merits of the case is not really relevant. Maybe incompetent is the wrong word to use for the South African government there. Perhaps malicious is a better word and something that Ernst actually did bring up. Right? Even though it's the most incompetent government or the most dysfunctional government, it's still capable of doing much. A lot of this collapse in South Africa isn't because the government can't fix the problems. It's because they don't want to. So their ability to bring this very competent case to the international courts against Israel is a good example that they can get things done and also that they care a lot about the Palestinian people. And that brings up, of course, the problem that many Western countries face. You have these governments who care a lot about foreign people and these foreign people might have a very serious plight. They may have a very just cause. But if these governments are looking out for the interests of other people at the expense of their own, then those governments are wrong. And again, not just incompetent, but really they're being malicious. Someone over on X, formerly known as Twitter, left a comment referring to your conversation you had with Michael Riddell. Rena writes, if immigrants not brought in, who will do the fruit picking, do nursing, construction work, or have experienced doctors and engineers? There is a continuous brain drain over the ditch. There are a lot of factors, just not one is immigration. Speak to business community. Well, yes, of course, the uh, business community is very interested in having cheaper labor. That's definitely in their best interests. And I think Michael did cover that as well. Basically, it appears to be in their best in interest, but in, in reality, the businesses will simply adapt to whatever the immigration policy is. So seasonal workers are also not always permanent immigrants. Very rarely is that the case because they their visa requires them to go back home. So it's less of an issue as well when you have seasonal workers. But the greater economic question really is about you know how these high levels of immigration are not helping the entire country overall. So maybe some individual businesses are profiting from the current situation. And of course, yes, we do have skill shortages in some of these really high uh, skill jobs, perhaps like doctors, engineers, nurses, maybe. But 
as Michael Rodell explained, that can be solved at the same time by training more, and then you can still have targeted uh, immigration slots for those particular jobs, and you'll you'll solve it overall. The real big issue is that most of New Zealand's immigration is effectively low skill. Uh, most of what we call high skill is again not particularly difficult work. So that's 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 really what's driving the high numbers that we're seeing, and. Uh, Michael, at least, is perfectly happy for businesses to be able to bring in overseas labor if they really can prove a case if they need it. So there are a lot of different views on immigration, and that's part of the interesting part of the discussion, of course, is that you know, we can bring these different perspectives in, and then hopefully some people in the government end up picking perhaps a middle ground between a couple of positions and actually improve the situation. So we're hoping that that conversation helps. And lastly, we have some messages here regarding Martin Sellner and your discussion you had with him. So I'll start with Peter Hamilton, who I believe we also responded to on our last show. Perhaps he might become a regular on here. He says, Hi, Dewa. Interesting and relevant discussion on re-migration. Thank you for your efforts to get the truth out. Civilized society can only survive if the majority, including migrants, are committed to a clearly defined set of values. Well, thank you, Peter. I actually do wonder if it's maybe supposed to be Peter from Hamilton, or if, or if his name is actually Peter Hamilton. <laughs> Perhaps let us know next time. And Donna here writes, Dewa, you are giving your Austrian guest, a garbled version of the New Zealand Maori Treaty issues, I suggest you read the book One Sun in the Sky by Ewan McQueen. Everyone in New Zealand would benefit from reading it. One sun means one government, but all people have the right to their own cultural development under the sun, not just co-governance. It is a great book. Cheers. Thanks, Donna. I have heard that book recommended a few times. I've seen that Ewan McQueen has appeared on RCR a few times already, and perhaps I may have him on the show eventually as well. After I've read his book, of course, I think that's going to be quite important. I agree with your statement there. I was giving a very simplified version of the issues we have in New Zealand to Martin. Obviously, it's, it's hard to explain such a complicated issue to an overseas guest. And his view, actually, Martin's view really was the same there, saying that we can have one government, one nation, and even different historic and organic minorities. That was the term that he used that European countries have as well, organic, historic minorities. And they can be recognized as part of the national uh, unity, uh, part of the government, and at the same time uh, have their own cultural development while still uh, functioning as a single state with a single government. So I think there's actually quite a bit of agreement on that. It's just few. sometimes we use slightly different words to describe a, a system when we broadly agree on the principles. Natalie writes in to say, this show is awesome. We're not too radical. We are just too early. Absolutely recommended. Well, thank you very much, Natalie. And yeah, it was a, a quote that I quite liked as well. Uh, obviously, it, it, it's often the case that the hard conversations require trailblazers that don't get thanked for their work early on, but then later on, people look back and say, hey, that person was right, and, and they were bringing up an important issue. And I, I see that myself as well. I'm looking back at issues that I'm talking about that really the only way, only reason I can talk about some of these things is because 
you know, for the past 10, 20, 30 years, the other people have been almost lone voices in the wilderness talking about these issues and, and bringing them up. So thank you. And our last message here is from Mark, who writes, really interesting German chap being interviewed on RCR on immigration. Challenging for libertarians, but agree with his quote, more ethnic diversity you have, the less social cohesion as democracy breaks down to an ethnic headcount, common values lost. Well, thank you, Mark. And it was a good, a good quote from Martin that I felt actually I was reminded of when I was doing some of the interviews today that when people complain about co-governance, I mean, even some of it was mentioned in the feedback earlier, largely these issues become ethnic headcount issues as well, right? The election will swing based on who's delivering what to certain ethnicities. And that's already the case in New Zealand. And it's it's really hard to get beyond that once you're stuck into once you're stuck into this problem where the active political issues are ethnic issues. So, so, so it's a real problem that we are experiencing New Ze- experiencing in New Zealand and not enough people are really willing to admit it. So I think we need to get into that zone where we're <laughs> willing to admit that some Somehow these issues need to be resolved in a in a permanent way that's satisfactory, a compromise that enough people on both sides are happy with, and then you can actually get the issues behind you. Otherwise, every single election from now on becomes, say, for instance, an ongoing referendum on co-governance, and you move backwards and forwards. Every single time you change government, then you're you're you're, you're digging the grave up again. So, would love to get. Some kind of resolution. I'm not sure. I don't think I'm capable of doing that, but I like to have the conversations, the dialogues on this show. You know, it's not arguments, not debates, but dialogues where we can hear different perspectives on these issues and then start to formulate hey, maybe, maybe there's some kind of compromise solution. Maybe there's a path that we can take that people would be happy enough with. So that's really something I want to be part of. Well, I think that's it for the feedback then. So thank you, Amy, and hopefully we'll see you next week. And it's been three pages of feedback, two shows in a row. So hopefully we get another three pages worth of feedback. If you're still listening, again, any questions that you've got for me, I'd love to take a deep dive on on a topic if you've got something that you want a comment on. And otherwise, again, keep sending back good comments about the interviews and, and questions that develop from those. It's really great to hear those from you. Thanks for having me here, Diwa. And that brings the show to a close. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Isaac Young today about his work to write fiction that runs counterculture or drawing on the literary tradition of providing meaningful lessons to readers that they can apply to their lives. And while he mentioned he does use AI as a tool, he's somewhat hesitant to make predictions about it overturning the world of excellent art. It's, of course, mediocre art wiped out completely by AI. I hope you learned something new as well about the uh, movement for co-governance and what motivates them, even if you vehemently disagree. Lastly, I hope you were inspired by Marcus and the work that some of our young people are doing to dig into New Zealand's rich history and past. There may only be a few hundred years worth of it, but that's enough for a lifetime or two. Next up is the RCR Weekly Wrap-Up Show with Natalie Cutler-Welsh, so don't go anywhere. And while summer may be over, 
at least in terms of the uh, way that the weathermen count it. The show will go on. Enjoy this performance of Vivaldi's Autumn by the Netherlands Bach Society with Schunske Sato on the violin. And if all goes well, the dialogue with Dio de Boer will be back next week, right on schedule. Thanks for tuning in to the dialogue with Dewa de Boer. You can catch the dialogue replays on our website at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash replays.